Hello there and welcome to episode 61 of the Hawthorns Debate Club. My name is Jamie Clay and I am joined this week by three gentlemen to have a few conversations and discussions about West Bromwich Albion. So let me start by saying a warm hello to my good friend Alex Collins. Hello. And hello to my little brother Joe Clay. Hello. And an additional and particularly warm hello to our new friend Chris Hall from the Albion Analysis podcast. Hello. It's interesting that Chris joins us tonight and we're going to come on to talk about the recent games and we're going to get into some more detail. But I don't know about you guys listening to this right now, gathered with us here tonight, that there's been a surge in unfamiliar feelings around the club, really. And I'm not sure that my body knows how to process all of these positive emotions concerning the Albion, the recent form and the recent years and months that feel like years that feel like centuries that feel like eternity of circling the the drain of potential moves that we could have concerning the club and it feels like it's only just in these last couple of weeks that our heads have been lifted above the murk and the gloom and it feels like the first time in millennium that we can actually breathe some marginally fresh air of hope and i think many of the things and i know chris and pete have mentioned this on their podcast and we were keen to mention it on our podcast last week and all of the other Albion fans out there on Twitter and Instagram and other podcasts are saying the same thing that it's good to keep our feet firmly grounded at this present state of affairs not to get too carried away by two victories at this point but it really does feel sweet to be gathered here at the debate club after back-to-back victories so in Corbran we trust I think is a, a little bit of a motto and mantra going forward let us just quickly say a huge thank you for downloading the podcast this week you know what Chris it's really really good to have you with us here tonight my hope is that many of our listeners will be aware of the genius work that Chris is part of on the Albion Analysis podcast but for the uninitiated I'm gonna attempt to paint you a bit of a background picture of Chris Chris is one half of the podcast every week. Chris and his co-host Pete cast what I'm going to describe as a, a bit of a forensic lens over the team and performances, as well as provide a more data and stats driven perspective on everything West Brom. But it isn't all just numbers and calculations. So if you are one of those people who is a little bit of a, a stats skeptic, a little bit of a Luddite, You'll still find that the guys have these great conversations and they really do have really good insights into everything that's going on at the club, what's on the pitch and what's off the pitch also. They've gone through games, performances and just all the news as well. So if you love Albion Podcast, my advice, and it has been our advice for many, many months on this podcast, is to go and check these guys out and add them to your Albion listening list. Chris, is that a fair description of you and the podcast? I'm going to pass you the paintbrush with which I was painting (laughs) there to add any detail you like. No, I'd say it's a fair enough description. I think, first of all, to say that, you know, I used to be one of those people who never looked at the data. Um, I mean, my sort of introduction to the data side of things was I I actually worked at the Albion for eight years back between uh, 2007 and 2006, 2007, up to 2014. And I actually shared a house with, with a club analyst at the time. So, like, I'd watch games with him and, you know, I think I knew what I was seeing and 
he just explained things to me and opened my eyes up to a whole other way of seeing games or seeing what players were actually doing and what players were contributing in, in games that, you know, whilst I understood football to a certain level, I kind of I didn't necessarily always have an appreciation for what certain players were doing on a pitch. And it was always amazing when I'd be watching a game with Johnny and the ball would break down on the edge of the defending team's penalty area and they'd pick the ball up and he'd go, they're going to score here. And I'm thinking, <laughs> they're 90 yards from goal. They're not... How, how on earth can you call that? And three passes later, the ball's got rolled in in the six-yard box. And I'm like, I think when you kind of understand how things work, it, it, you, you can see things like that. Pete is definitely the analyst out of the two of us. I dabble. I understand how to read the data and I, I look at sites like who scored, transfer marked, and I look at the data Pete sends me. But I'm, you know, I'm a layman. Uh, I'm, I'm the same as everybody else. I just kind of, I just have a real fascination for it and I, I enjoy understanding it. Pete's the one who who kind of does it professionally. But w- w- what we try and do is we just try and try and almost expand the definition of or the analysis of Albion's performances because I think a lot of Albion fans you know, have a very good idea of what they're seeing, but there's maybe slightly granular things going on. For example, we were we were pulling up David Button's performances from quite early on in the season because we were looking at the shot data and we were just thinking, everything's going past this fella. Why why is everything going past this fella? You know, it's just it's crazy. You you look at the data and you just think, whilst yes, there was some defensive errors going on there's no way any goalkeeper should be conceding the amount of shots that uh, that he was and then equally you know people were having a go at all the crosses into the box and and again Pete and I were looking at it and going actually when you look at the expected threat some of the chance creation and the expected goals and everything within what we're actually creating the the crossings not the problem it's the finishing it's the players on the end of them it was the way that we were attacking these balls that was largely the problem you looked you looked at the expected threat of a lot, a lot of Wallace's crosses and they were brilliant it's just players like you know not not wanting to single out Carl and Grant but he's certainly one who was who wasn't finishing them off well enough but also from set pieces people moan about our set pieces you actually look at the data around the balls into the box and our balls into the box are pretty good mm-hmm. it's just we've not attacked them properly and it's shock horror Corbran comes in gets a bit of a plan for set pieces and bosh we score off two in two games it's not rocket science no, that's really good. I think that's what I, why we were so keen to get you on the podcast is you you clearly are looking at the game with a different set of lenses on, I believe described, or a different set of glasses on. And obviously, I think you've become a reference point for a lot of people in terms of Albion and data. And obviously, you've got your personal Twitter and Pete does the Albion Analytics Twitter handle, which produces all of these graphics and stats that you see then shared across Twitter and across Instagram. And honestly, I think it's informed many of our conversations on here, the great work you guys are doing. So I think obviously, as we get into the conversations, really keen to kind of pick your brain. And obviously, you've described yourself there as a layman. But obviously, in terms of your your interest, you're quite keen to kind of help other people who are perhaps even less initiated in stats kind of grasp and appreciation for what's actually occurring yeah, on the and pitch. I think I think the other thing that probably I bring to the party is that I've worked in football I've worked I've worked in this very football club I've not seen it in the state it's in now like I wasn't within those four walls when we were in a really really good place when I was at the club nothing to do with me obviously but um you know you're too modest Chris <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I was definitely the one ringing up uh, going into Dan Ashworth's office and going have you seen Claudio Jacob he's decent but I've seen 
what a well-run football club looks like. And that's that's part of the reason it hurts me so much when because when I look at stuff and I mean I, I thought the Elias Burke article a few weeks ago was uh-huh, just uh-huh. the most brilliant piece of journalism. And when you actually break down our transfer business like that, I just look at that and I think that's a recruitment team shooting without a plan because I remember going into our, uh, you know, because our recruitment team were great guys. We worked at the tra- training ground with them and you could just, you could walk into the office and have a, have a conversation. It wasn't like private, do not enter. They were good fellas and you could walk in and have a conversation with them. And I remember a few times sort of like walking in and basically saying things to me like certain clubs who have a similar size with a little bit more money than us, like your Stokes, for example, at that time. They're like, they're using our scouting. They're basically waiting to see who we bid on and then bidding on these people. Now we're that club. Now we're that club that doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't scout players. We just wait to see who clubs of a reasonably similar size go for and go for them. And it's yeah, it's it's really it's really sad because you know, I, I was at the club during a time when you didn't necessarily hear, you didn't know who a lot of the players were before they came through the door. But there was just always an excitement, a buzz mm-hmm. around the club when you'd get wind that we were bringing in a new player because you just always trusted Dan and you trusted his staff and you trusted the guys in the recruitment department that I'd never heard of Peter Wingy, No idea who the fellow was. But you just you just know this guy's going to be mustered because they found him. And mm-hmm. I just don't feel that way about Ian Pierce and the people. Well, I don't even know who else is there. I mean, Ian Pierce and his son obviously are there, but other than that, I don't even know who's there. Well, Steve Bruce's Christmas card list sounds like it made up some of the transfer policy, which was always encouraging. <laughs> We've had a nice introductory chat there with Chris, and we're going to get his uh, perspective. We're going to allow his mind juices to flow over the QPR game. There's probably a more elegant way I could have described that, but I'm going to it's keep probably a less filthy in. way of saying that. But you know, and yet we continue regardless into <laughs> the space and darkness that that perhaps might take us to. But we're going to look at the QPR game and have a little bit of a chat about the second of two victories under the Carlos Corberan regime. It obviously finished 1-0, a nice three o'clock kickoff on a Saturday, which is always pleasant. It was something of a game that I think many fans were going into with small amount of positivity, but a certain amount of trepidation, obviously. The Blackpool game had kind of got us all riding a little bit of a high, but there were so many caveats to the performance, even though they were encouraging, it wasn't mind-blowing performance. And obviously then considering the opposition, most people felt comfortable saying that QPR was going to be a difficult game. And it certainly proved to be a more complicated game. But straight away, immediately, as soon as the game kicked off, we saw a more seemingly more organised, a more resolute Albion. And in the intangible sense, I guess, a little bit more of a... And now being that seemed to want it a little bit more, which I know is a little bit of a crude way of talking about football, particularly when we've got Chris on to kind of consider the numbers and whatnot. But they did seem to be a bit more fight and bite and energy and, and intensity about the Albion this week. And obviously we had marginalised Carl Bartley come back to be the hero, zero to hero with his goal that won it for us. But let's start off our conversation. I'm going to hand it over to you, Chris, first to talk a little bit about some of your broad takeaways from this game. Anything that stood out to you, anything that you feel Carlos Corbran has introduced early doors that that are already visible on the pitch? Yeah, he's playing centre-halves at centre-half. You know, who who'd have thought? He's a magician. Yeah, uh, who'd who'd have thought playing players in position works? Now, to be fair, I just want to say something about Bartley because I mean, you said zero to hero. I think it's worth saying that in the Millwall game, 
And I took some stick off people, people that I know and people that I respect for calling him a moron on Twitter after the game, because I didn't mean I think he's a moron. I meant what he did was moronic. To make that challenge on Benekophobi, knowing you're on a booking 1-1 with five minutes to go, I thought was stupid. I really did. But I have to say, I think actually, if you take the 84 minutes that went before that, I thought he was excellent. I thought he was brilliant against one of the teams that puts you under the most pressure out of the whole league. You know, they put so many balls into the box. You know what you're going to get from them. And I thought Bartley was was excellent. And it wasn't a huge surprise to me that he was very, very good in this game. The problem with Carl Bartley is that he's an excellent box defender, but he's not great at much outside of that. And, you know, he's not brilliant with his feet. He hasn't got a range of passing. He's not enormously quick. And to be honest, positionally, if you play a high line, he's not brilliant. He does get exposed. And we saw that against Birmingham. But I blame Bruce for what happened against Birmingham. We said this on the pod. You know, you cannot, cannot play a high line with O'Shea and Bartley at the back it was absolutely criminal and it was no wonder we got exposed in behind and i think where where we've seen bartley have horrible horrible performances generally speaking they've been because tactically the things he's been asked to do are not the things that he's good at and to a certain extent i extend this to people like carl and grant as well that i feel sorry for guys being asked to do a role that's not suited to them Colin Grant is not a number nine. Not in a million years is he a number nine. Now, could he work harder at times? Yes, 100%. Could he jump for a header? Wouldn't that be lovely? <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you look at some of the ways the fans were getting on at him against Blackpool, and I thought it was really harsh. There was mm, one where... Totally yeah, he went for a ball and, okay, he was never going to get there. So he's pulled out slightly, but not in a way that he, there was any chance of him getting there. And suddenly he's getting jeers and boos from the crowd. And, you know, you've got some people cheering when he went down injured. And I don't, I understand how we feel the way we feel about the Albion. The last two years that we have gone through is unacceptable. It really is. But at the same time, I think we've got to put the blame where it belongs to a certain degree. Okay, there are certain players in that team that, you know, probably shouldn't be there. That's fair enough. But at the same time, there's some of them that get stick that, if used correctly, are good players. Jake Livermore, if he's asked to keep it simple and just break things up in the middle of the park, is still one of the best defensive midfielders in this division. I have no doubt in my mind about that. If Carl Bartley is just asked to defend his box, is one of the best box defenders in this division. Matty Phillips has shown in the last couple of weeks how much he still has to contribute. Now, why Matt Phillips isn't consistent is a whole other question. I think you need a psychologist to answer that question, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you, because Pulis talked about Matt Phillips and his up and down kind of confidence and things. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of Matt Phillips not trying. I just think it, Matt Phillips's confidence is it's like a roller coaster. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's crazy. But I think what we have to do is sometimes we have to realize that the blame for some of the performances that these players turn in is not down to them a lot of the time. Some of the time it is. Some of the time it is. Some of the some of the performances are just they're poor. They're bad. Maybe even mm-hmm. they don't try hard enough. That's fair enough. But I think some of the time it's down to the coach not applying the tactics properly. Or the people who run the club not giving us a squad worthy of the name. So we go into the season with three centre-halves and one centre-forward who was injured for most 
last season and shock horror gets injured a week into the season. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we just, as a fan base, I think we need to just keep that in mind sometimes. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. Uh, and I think obviously, like you've said, there's been elements of what you just brought, Chris, in the Carl Bartley conversation and Carl and Grant, who's a particular kind of heartbreak story of my own. Like I do feel like I'm often on that hill alone just very cold and frightened trying to not get emotional but at the same time sharing everyone's frustration joe it was kyle bartley that won the free kick really kind of advanced up the pitch really stole in into the kind of final third and just nicked the ball ahead of a defender and gets brought down and then it's john swift then who delivers the cross and it's kyle bartley who kind of drives the ball home what were your thoughts and feelings about this game what did you get out of this one Joe is going to mime his answer to us, and I'm going to share the details with the mimes with you, audience, as he scrutinizes his computer screen. Perhaps then, Alex, will go to you first. I'd just like to say thanks for joining us, Chris. I think it's fascinating hearing your sort of history with the club and, you know, an analytics view on the club's current position and I think it's really really interesting particularly what you were saying around uh, Kyle Bartley it's quite interesting that he for me he strikes me as a player that has got he's certainly got strengths I mean you don't achieve what he has at Leeds and getting promotion with the Albion probably three three seasons ago now you don't achieve that by being a, a rubbish player and I, I do think that you've, you've almost in my mind kind of justified that you know he has got those strengths and he just wasn't being played correctly I mean he's a leader as well isn't he on the pitch and I find it so interesting how with a lot of the players, they've probably got strengths, but every strength is also a weakness and vice versa. So it's as a manager, you've got to come in and you've really got to try and manipulate those strengths and try and improve the weaknesses or at least try and mitigate those risks. Perhaps that's something that Bruce wasn't doing. The problem with Bruce is he just didn't adapt quickly enough. And I, I felt that both in terms of tactically generally, like when Ajay got injured, I mean, Pete and I said, Pete and I said before the season started, if a guy gets injured, you've got a real problem because he's your only centre-half with pace. And it seemed pretty obvious to us on the podcast that when a guy got injured against Wigan, you've got to drop your defensive line 10 yards. Like, it's not, this is not rocket science. Yet that didn't occur to Steve Bruce. It didn't occur to Steve Bruce that Button was costing him goals every single game. You look at the way we played against certain teams, for example, Cardiff, when they just got two banks of four in front of us and it was sideways, sideways, even at Preston, one nil down, he made the changes and then we had a bit of a flurry and then the players ran out of ideas. He didn't seem to have that adaptability, both in-game and between games. I actually think the way he set us up at the start of the season was quite good. It was just, he got found out in certain games. I mean, I thought the only game that I can think back to where where I think Bruce has changed mid-game and has really bossed the other manager was the opening day of the season against Middlesbrough, where he got it wrong in the first half and then he really adapted his tactics second half. And I thought when it came to the battle of the minds, Bruce versus Wilder, Bruce won that day. My, my issue with Bruce was, I think people who called him a dinosaur and that he didn't have a clue tactically, I thought was very harsh. And I thought also not Albion fans, but some of the general media media making out that we must have been boring to watch under Bruce clearly weren't watching us because we weren't we weren't boring to watch. We were actually quite exciting. Problem yeah. was we were letting too many goals in. But 
I thought he lost his head after probably around the Preston game. I think he lost his head and lost his way and didn't really know what he was doing after that. But I thought up until that point, up until probably the Birmingham game, I thought he was setting us up okay at the start of games. I mean, got it all sorts of wrong against Birmingham. Let's not even go there on that one. But I just thought he didn't adapt mm-hmm. in-game and and he wasn't making really obvious changes like Button was clearly a big, big problem in our side. And to be honest, he had to find another solution at centre-forward as well because Grant wasn't the answer. And I think it's really interesting that Corbran has seen that really quickly. I mean, I know Grant's got injured, so to be fair to him. But even mid-game, you want to see the difference between Corbran and Bruce. Look against Blackpool. It, it was either Blackpool or Sheffield United. It, it escapes me now. But Corbran basically decided Grant was not having a good game at centre-forward. Moved him out to the left. Yeah. Phillips goes centre-forward. You never saw Bruce do that. No. And Phillips was good at centre-forward. Phillips was good at the nine. You just didn't see Bruce doing those things. And I, I think that's where he let him down, let himself down. I don't think he was a dinosaur. I don't think he's tactically inept. I just think he's really, really slow to make decisions. And whether that's dropping players who needed dropping, like Button, or whether that's making tactical changes in-game, I just think he was slow. And I think, in the end, that's what cost him his job. Yeah, I think that's the point that I kind of have seen, I guess, perhaps as one of the more dominant features of Corbyn's management already. It's this kind of on-the-spot problem solving. I think that's one of the kind of incidences that I'd certainly point to was, I think it was against Blackpool when he switched Carlin Grant out to the left and Phillips went through the middle. And there's certain aspects of what he's doing in-game, those kind of tweaks to the shape, the swapping of wingers i know that's a kind of a little bit of a a trope and a lot of teams do do that but there's these in-game adjustments that are a response to what the other team are doing that i haven't seen with under bruce as you said i think there were certain games where bruce got it all wrong at the very very start i think one of the interesting things to come back to corbin here now is this we had a kind of a really good result obviously against blackpool and that lineup that he named against Blackpool, obviously it was successful. It took a, a scrambled in goal from Yukushlu and it wasn't elegant. And I think you said it on your podcast from three yards out, Yukushlu is one of the best finishers in the league, especially when the goalkeeper's lying down next to the ball. But um, I thought a lot of us were kind of ex- expecting, Joe, and perhaps you can give us some your perspective on this. A lot of people were expecting the lineup to remain the same going into the QPR game. Obviously, you don't change your winning formula and all of these things. But again, Corbin made kind of significant changes, dropped fan favourite TGH, which is never a popular move. I imagine if Steve Bruce did that, there would have been all kinds of hell on Twitter. But he's made these adjustments. And and again, is this something that it, it all comes back to this kind of new philosophy of being able to trust a manager is going to be able to set us up in a sense of like being in a position of strength based on the opposition rather than just a certain idea about playing football? Your mic's not working, Joe. Can I just jump in on that, Please Jamie, do. if you don't mind? I mean, look, I think what that comes down to, and this is this is not a dig at Richard Beale, by the way, who I'd like to say I thought got some very unfair stick on uh, on social media for things like Jake Livermore being on the bench with an earpiece in, and you know, ludicrous things like that. W- when the guy was stepping in and doing us a favour, he you could tell from his interviews he did not want to be first team manager. He was doing it because he'd been asked to do. He's not earning any more money to have all this scrutiny, and I thought he did a really, really cracking job. But you see the difference between somebody like 
Richard Beale, who has no experience of first team management other than taking charge of one game for Blues, which he lost 7-0 anyway. Mm-hmm. And Carlos Corbran, who has had a couple of seasons at Huddersfield to make his mistakes, realise what the wrong things to do in management are and the right things to do. And having worked with quite a few managers at West Brom, what I found is that the best ones, they obviously had a lot of qualities, but one of the qualities that they had that, that was that they could almost block out the outside noise that they didn't make decisions based on what the fans wanted. They didn't make decisions about based on what the press were telling them that they had to do. They made decisions based on what they were seeing, what their coaches were seeing, what the data was telling them, what they were seeing on the training field, and, and also knowing the players and knowing their fitness, knowing the data that was coming back from the from the medical staff, and also knowing the players' mental states at, at times. You know, I'm obviously not going to name names here, but the, I, I remember being at the club and there was players not playing and, and people going, why aren't they playing? And I'm thinking, this, this guy's not in the right headspace to be playing. And you can't tell people that, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Beal, the mistake he made between Reading game and the Bristol City game was exactly what you said there, Jamie, that he went with the philosophy of you don't change a winning team. And I think particularly in this championship season, uh, the most condensed championship season we've probably ever had and with an Albion squad that is ageing. We said we were going to get it younger. We've actually somehow, I think we've made it older. I'm not 100% on the data on that, but I wouldn't be shocked if we'd made it older. And you can't ask those guys to play twice in in three or four days. I mean, Martin Kelly has played more games in a month than he has in the last two years. That's wild. You can't ask Martin Kelly to play twice in four days. You just can't. And Beal did. And it was a mistake. You can't... You, you can't send Jake Livermore out there twice in a few days. You can't send Eric Peters out there twice in a, in a few days. I think we went into that Bristol City game with the same side as Reading, obviously. And I think there was three or four 30 pluses in there. And fair play to Corbran. What he realised is that against Blackpool, yes, OK, I, uh, I've got a good result. I've got the result I wanted. But at the same time, I'm playing again in a few days' time. And my team has already gone through a period where in October they've played eight games in a month. Mm. I can't ask these players to go again in three, four days' time, even after a win, and expect to get the same levels out of them. Because And people who say things like, oh, but, you know, back in the day, people players used to play every two days. It's a different game. Like the conditioning that these guys go through and and the percentages involved between winning and losing. We you've only got to look at us this season. We've only won four games all season, right? But before Bruce left, we hadn't lost a single game by more than one goal. Wow. So the margins between us winning and us losing, we'd also drawn eight. So you take that into account. We have on eight occasions been one goal away from winning. We have also, uh, on every occasion that we had lost when Bruce was manager this season, we had only been one goal away from drawing. And we all know how easily a goal can come, even if you don't deserve it. So those are the margins that you're dealing with. And those margins can be the difference of, has a player still got a sprint in him in the 65th minute when he's played on Wednesday night? Or if he hasn't played on Wednesday night, maybe he has got that sprint in him. And I think the difference between a manager with experience like Corbran, and as I say, I'm not getting at Beal, can't expect him to have this kind of thought process. But somebody like Beal who goes, those lads have done well for me on Saturday. I'm only here for three games anyway. I'm just going to go again with the same mm-hmm. boys. Corbran, I thought it was fascinating that Corbran 
absolutely did not do that because he's a manager with experience and there was no room for sentiment. It wasn't, you've done well for me on on in midweek, so I'm going to pick you again. I, I thought he was really telling what he said to BBC Radio WM after the Blackpool game, when Rob Gurney said to him, can that give you a boost now going to QPR? And he went, QPR is a completely different game. Yeah, yeah. I Blackpool sat point, in. Yeah. yeah, Blackpool sat in. QPR won't do that. It's a totally different game. And I, I was in the car with my dad on the way home when, when he said that, and I said, he'll change it against Blackpool. Against QPR, sorry, he won't check. He won't play the same because if he's just said that, what he's thinking is, and Pete and I said this on the pod that he is a manager who will who doesn't care what the result was at the weekend. He will look at the opposition, he will look at his group of players, and he will go, which eleven of you is the the eleven that they won't want to face? And he won't care what happened before, how many goals you've got in how many weeks, what the score was at the at the weekend. He will look at his group of 20, 23, 24, 25 players and he will he will say what strengths and weaknesses have they got? Which 11 of you can cause them the most problems? Which 11 of you are the fittest at this moment in time? So happy that we've got Corbyn. You know, we're so lucky to have such an intelligent manager. I mean, I suppose would you say there are any disadvantages to taking that approach? Like, what would you say Corbyn's weaknesses are? I mean, should we talk about Corbyn's weaknesses on a on a podcast? But is it? I suppose what I'm trying to get at is, you know, he's obviously got a strength here that he's a, a bit of a tinkerman. Is, would you say it's fair to say that with the situation of a? He's quick, a situation. I think. I think Alex, what you've said there is better. I think he's a situational manager. I think the problem with the, the tinkerman thing is it, it kind of throws back to Claudio Ranieri in the early days yeah. of the Premier League and. And, and people have very negative connotations about it. The funny thing is about that is that if Claudio Ranieri was doing it that now, nobody would blink an eye. I actually think he was ahead of his time. But in terms of Corbrand, has he got weaknesses? Yeah, of course he has, because he wouldn't be manager of West Bromwich Albion if he hadn't. And look, when you change the team, you can put players' noses out of joint. I've seen it. As much as people think players are happy to pick their money up, I did not work with many, if any, players who were like that. Players want to play football. And when you're leaving them out, I think it comes down to how your man management is. How are you going to handle that situation? Are you going to explain to them? Are you just going to leave them out? Are you going to pull them in and say, look, my plan is next three games, you're going to play this one and this one, but I've got to leave you out of the middle one. How are you going to deal with that situation? I think in the longer term that's a test of Corbrand's management can he do that but I think at the moment it's very difficult to talk about what are the negatives when it comes to Carlos Corbrand because he's had three games one of them he tried pretty much every formation under the sun and he almost he almost treated it like a pre-season friendly against Sheffield United it was bizarre and it wasn't a surprise we lost the game doing that but Maybe to understand the players, he almost needed yeah. to almost write off a game to have a look at the players. And then Blackpool and QPR, he's got it all kinds of right. Mm-hmm. So fair play to him. But look, the test of any manager is, is in is in longevity. All I hope with Carlos Corbran is that he is a manager who is used to working in a proper football structure. He's worked with a technical director before. He had Lee Bromby uh, at Huddersfield. I hope we give him the structure to succeed because to bring in a manager like Corbran... 
And then to go into transfer windows without that football structure with, God forbid, Ian Pearce and Ron Gourlay making transfer decisions because that's just Please a no. recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's, it's ludicrous. That, you know, Gourlay has no qualification to be making decisions about transfers. He is He's a commercial man and he's a very successful commercial man, but he's not... He, he's not a football person. And whilst Ian Pierce apparently has the qualifications, I've seen absolutely no evidence that he has mm. any capability or competency to actually bring in the players that we need him to. That's my opinion anyway. So I think the thing with Corbran is whether he succeeds or fails over the long term, I just hope we give him the best opportunity to succeed or fail because I feel like that's what we haven't done with almost every manager that we've had in, over the last few years. You you look back and you say, okay, we gave Bilic the players he wanted first time around, but then we just simply didn't spend enough money when we went up to the uh, to the Premier League. Allardyce actually did get what he wanted, and shockingly enough, we had a decent crack at staying up because when he got the players like Ainsley Maitland-Niles and Dianya and Yukoslu, we looked a much better side. Valerian Ishmael, I'm sorry, if you're going to bring in a, a guy who who is so different to what's come before, you've got to give him the capability to turn the squad over. Mm -hmm. Alex Mowat was not going to transform that squad. He was a good lieutenant for Val, but you needed to give him that number nine. You need to give him DK from the start of the season, and then maybe we'd have had a chance. And to be honest, Steve Bruce... Again, I mean, the money's got spent badly. That We've blown it all on Yukoslu, Wallace and Swift, which is not good planning at all. But even then, I mean, we we screw up transfers for Josh Onoma and Steven Alzate right at the end of the window. Who knows what Bruce's Albion would have actually looked like with those two players? Maybe it wouldn't have been different at all, but maybe it would have made all the difference in the world. We'll never know. I just really, really hope we give this manager a chance because I, I think part of the reason we keep going through managers the way most people go through hot dinners is because we, we don't give them the tools to do the job. And, and, and that's the problem. And I'll tell you what, every manager that Dan Ashworth had in, they succeeded or failed on their own merits because Dan gave them every opportunity. Yeah, that's such a well-made point. I think that's the reality, isn't it, now? To be set up for success is everything at our club. And I think one of the things that you're seeing about Corbyn is he's he's able to use the resource at his disposal presently, which is really encouraging. But like you say, for the longevity and the, to escape the firefighting mentality, at the Albion where there's this high turnover of managers but then also kind of the short termism of the way in which recruit players like older players who obviously have got experience but are only looking us to get us over that next three months to get us promoted or avoid relegation I think that shift now is not just a one that's dependent on the manager that's like a, an infrastructure and club thing I'm keen to hear from you as well, Joe. I do think it's quite funny that your microphone's only worked when you is said hello today. It is now working. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's quite funny. <laughs> Joe has just been silently observing the podcast and giving his best charades at the time. Joe, just, yeah, your thoughts. Obviously, Chris there is just, you know, some really kind of top insight, his background and his experience working with various different managers. Anything that you want to say yourself? Uh, these are going to be the words of wisdom here now. So I've been waiting so long. <laughs> now, on the previous episodes, Chris, I've been saying this from the start. I'm in business design in my professional job. And in football, it doesn't seem to be a thing. Obviously, in the top clubs, you you know, your Man United, Chelsea, Man City, they've probably got a massive team of business design analysts through business analysts, service designers and all that doesn't seem like the Albion. They just basically forget about it. It's like gutted inside the commercial side. When if you get that right, it helps the team on the 
pitch. It, it you know it, it flows through it, any business. If you get the structure, you get the design right, you get the operational side right. It, you know, it, and you give them the capabilities. It helps the structure, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. But this is my venture in the future. I am going to go into business design in there, football, but that's for another story. But yeah, going to uh, the match though, I just think for me as a fickle football fan, you know that celebration at the end when you see your Kushlu jumping off, Peter's hugging Corberan. I don't know why Peter's hugging Corberan. He's been in the club for like <laughs> not that long, has he? But you know, I just it think... does feel like a betrayal of Steve. He's going to have to explain that when he gets home over the fence. I know. As well. yeah. that's, <laughs> it's not a conversation I want to be involved in. But I think it goes to your point, Chris there's Gorbrand's got this like strategy and he obviously has got the man management I know he hasn't been in the club that long but he obviously did this at Huddersfield he played to his percentages against the other team you know he dropped players when they were needed if they were fatigued or if they didn't suit his tactic coming against the opposition but I think that drives respect for the manager and I think not saying that people didn't respect Steve Bruce, but I think he knew his favourites. He knew if you're in a position where his favourites were, like Jake Livermore played a lot of games under Steve Bruce, didn't he? So, you know, your TGHs, they'll try hardest in training, but he's going to put him at right back where he probably doesn't feel like he's best at or his analysis. Maybe he does think he's best at right back, but his analysis is his centre midfield. I remember seeing him against Coventry last season. What a game he played. And I know we all go back to that. Because, you know, he, he was brilliant in that game. But I just think from Corbran, I think that that strategy, that tactician, I think footballers are more wiser now. And they see, you know, they all watch the Premiership. They all watch Pep Guardiola. They all watch these Amazon documentaries. And if you see your manager not doing that, you're like, oh, God. You know, they're like us. They watch football. Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you said, because in the post-match interview, Carl Bartley actually addressed that. He said he hadn't worked with a manager who was as detail-orientated as Carlos Corbran. And it's it's interesting that that's the same language that ourselves have been using, you guys have been using on, Chris and Peter have been using. I've heard it on the Liquidator and all various other podcasts out there, that they're talking about this idea that this is a completely foreign concept that hasn't been at the Albion since the time as you said, Chris, with Dan Ashworth and and all of that structure was there. And there was an interesting piece, I think it was in The Athletic today, which was talking about Liverpool for sale uh, and FSG's involvement and wanting to kind of move the club on. And one of their strategies at the very end, I think it was like 2010 or so, they bought Liverpool. But effectively, one of the things they wanted to make sure is if you get, as you've just said, Joe, if you get stuff right off the pitch, it trickles down onto the pitch. It is, you can't do it. You can't reverse engineer that. You can't hope to look out on the pitch over a sustained period of time and hope that that will fix everything behind the scenes. It definitely seems that, I don't know, we, we almost seem to be trying to do it backwards. Uh, I know it's something you talked about as well, Chris, and we shared your theory on the podcast here about when we were recruiting a manager, that was something of a concern that you're, there's a big vacuum like vacuous hole in the Albion of a technical director and a football board and one of the things you suggested was to to steal a pairing effectively from a lower league club or you've already mentioned Lee Bromby target him and Corbin and bring in a ready-made kind of footballing board into the club and I'm reminded like Potter went to from Brighton to Chelsea and Chelsea have just gutted Brighton in that process because he's brought his staff it's a bit of a brutal way of treating clubs further down the leagues but ultimately it's it's something of a, a strategy to kind of shortcut your way to a bit of infrastructure at the club yeah I think the thing for me is that when I was at the club you know during what was a really really successful period for us 
I think everybody knew where the club was trying to get to, what we were trying to do. We knew the building blocks that were being put in place. We knew that um, Dan was not only building up the first team squad, but also that he was building up the academy and that there was going to be good young players coming through, not imminently, but in a short period of time. And I think the thing was as well that you trusted the process. I mean, Jeremy himself trusted the process to a great degree. I remember Jeremy Peace not being overly concerned with relegation, really. He always believed that, you know, he knew the club was financially stable and therefore could keep hold of its players for one, two seasons after relegation. But he also knew that there was value in the players if he had to sell them. So when we didn't get back up that first season, Brian Robson slash Tony Mowbray, he knew that there was value in... Curtis Davis, in Paul Robinson, in Paul McShane, Diamante Camera, Jason Kumas. And we generated that money that we then spent on Chris Brunt, James Morrison, people like that. So there was always a plan. There was always a contingency for what are we going to do next? That was that, that was the thing. And But it was never a massive shift. The manager situation, the manager generally lifted out and the, and the next one came in, you know, because the, these were managers that could work with the squad of players that, that exist and also we kept a consistency of staff as well like you know you had Craig Shakespeare Keith Downing Dean Kiley Michael Appleton all worked across multiple managers as first team coaches so we kept a consistency as well within within that and I think that's something that we've lost I know Alex you you're wondering whether it was all fell apart immediately or whether there was a bit of a gradual shift it definitely was a gradual shift I mean look it didn't certainly didn't fall apart immediately that that planning was still there Richard Garlick actually was underrated for the job he did at the football club because everybody thinks as soon as Dan went out the door, the whole shooting match fell apart. That was not the case. That was not the case at all. Okay, we got one or two transfers wrong in the transfer window. And we had one really bad window into that second Steve Clark's season where in the end Pepe Mel came in. But at that point, Jeremy was taking advice off a guy called Dave McDonough, who probably doesn't get mentioned enough for his part in the Albion decline because Dave basically sold the dream to to Jeremy uh, as I understand it this is entirely my opinion so if I'm if I'm wrong and Dave McDonough wants to come on and give his side the story and shoot me down feel free um, hey, we, but as we, I understand... we embrace reckless speculation on the well, they, club well so there we go what, far from the hip as far as I'm concerned but, but as, as as I understand it he basically sold Jeremy this more continental model because he'd worked out in Spain and places like that he'd worked with Rafa Benitez a lot and Jeremy bought into it and we tried to transition across that the club wasn't ready for it. I don't think that the infrastructure was there and certainly the management selection wasn't in the right place. I mean, we tried to recruit a continental manager from a position of weakness mid-season. It was not a good idea. And that was where the malaise really set in. It wasn't, it, it, I, I would like to say very, very strongly now, because Richard Garlick is over at Arsenal doing an unbelievable job. Look how good Arsenal are this season. Yeah. If anybody thinks Rich Garlick, and if you've watched the Arsenal All or Nothing documentary, do you don't think Rich Garlick's playing a part in that? You're crazy. Because he, he, he is an excellent, excellent, operator and he was fantastic for our football club was he Dan Ashworth no no he wasn't but but he also wasn't the suit that people made him out to be Rich had a playing background Rich played youth football in Sheffield in the same team as Kevin Davis he was a good footballer I know I've played with Rich 
He was a good, good player. Um, he wasn't anywhere near good enough to make it pro, and he'd openly admit that himself. But he was he was a good player, and he knew football. People just think because he's got a law degree, must must not know football. I've got a law degree. I like to think I know a bit about football. Just because you have a qualification doesn't mean you, you don't know about something in sport. Mm-hmm. He was a great operator. Where the malaise started to kick in was when we started to change things way too rapidly. And we did what most clubs do who get to our point is we get over ambitious. You know, we, we get to a point where we believe we can probably finish mid-table Premier League most most seasons and we shoot for the stars and we try and go to the next level. And we're not the first club to do this. You know, it's it's what cost Charlton back in the day when people said, you know, oh, Alan Kirbishley, he's took, he's took Charlton as far as they can go. Yeah, he had, but that was because that was as far as Charlton could go. And maybe, just maybe, We'd gone as far as West Bromwich Albion could go when we finished eighth under uh, under Steve Clark, and I think that was probably that was probably where we'd got to. And I think the problem was we raised the expectations that season. In actual fact, any time that West Bromwich Albion are in the Premier League and finish outside the relegation zones, they've they've had a really good season. We got a little bit over ambitious. We started to change too much. Jeremy took a little bit of bad advice, and. You know, maybe maybe there was a little bit of taking his eye off the ball because he'd made the decision he was he was selling the club as well. Whilst Dan going was not a good thing for us, and nobody says it was, I don't like it when people say Dan Ashworth walking out the door was the moment Albion started to decline because that suggests Rich Garlic didn't do a good job, and he really, really did. I think I'm starting to feel, Chris, the more and more you uh, kind of share with us about your past is that you were the domino that caused the collapse <laughs> when you leave. And uh, I'm not sh- levering that as a kind of a blame at you. Mate, I genuinely jumped the ship because I thought we were going to go down that season because there's always a round of redundancies when you get relegated. And I was scared that I might be one of them. We we were teetering outside the bottom three. One of the reasons for me going to London and joining the FA, uh, part of it was it was a great opportunity. But the other part was I was a little bit scared we'd go down and 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 that maybe my head would be one of those who got culled if we did go down. So, so uh, you... on, Honest cards on the table, that was a factor. So straw that broke the camel's back was Chris Hall leaving. <laughs> and that <laughs> led to the, the gradual demise. I think the fact that you're saying there, and I think I do want to pick your brain a little bit more, Chris, and I do realise you have to go soon. So I don't want to just steal you from your family and the rest of your evening. But um, it is interesting to kind of talk about like a reset of expectations as we have over the past few weeks with Corbyn being part and parcel of like the way forward at Albion. But then the realistic kind of end goal being, could Albion ever hope to achieve anything realistically above eight in the premiership, even in the 10-year plan? Like, I don't really know with the way football looks now when you talk about the big six, when you talk about kind of the way for Champions League and the way everything's changing as Super League, that there is a certain like echelon of football that is just no longer accessible to teams like Albion it feels like yeah, it. I think least. that's true. I, I I think without investment, I think it would be really, really hard. I mean, you, you look at the trouble the likes of West Ham and Everton have breaking into that. Like, how much money have they wasted? Oh like, you goodness. know, how many Everton how many strikers have... Well, West Ham, how many strikers have they bought and then sold off for a fraction mm. of what they paid for them? Everton, how much money have they spent on players who've turned out to not be anywhere near good enough? Like... How much money do you have to spend just to fail in the in the Premier League? Our lovely pals down the road had to spend well north of a hundred million just to finish seventeenth in that yeah. division. 
do you know what? That's not a dig at Villa. Fair play to them they, because 17th is a success. And I know Villa fans because they, they they still think it's 1982, don't want to believe that. But finishing 17th when you've just come up from the championship is absolutely a success. I think that's what Mike Ashley said, isn't it? When he was talking about the future of Newcastle, and he was basically saying, like, I could spend £300 million on Newcastle and the transfer policy over a summer, and we could finish two places higher in the league. And ultimately, I don't have the kind of money and or ability to invest on the scale that's required to break into that top six. And I think for teams like Albion now, and I think like you get like the glorious kind of couple of year cycle that Leeds have just enjoyed and Brentford are currently enjoying, but you they do feel like cycles. And I feel like even in our best possible version of us going forward, we're only going to be able to mirror what those guys are doing. Right, we're going to rattle off some quick fire questions with Chris. We're going to allow Chris to leave the safety of the debate club and the warmth of its fire and its hearth and whatnot and back out into the wintry cold. So I'm going to call this little section Questions with Chris. And there'll be some <laughs> lovely music underneath, I'm sure, as we're speaking. These are quick fire, Chris. So obviously you're a stats guy, a stats man, proficionado. There's a certain elegance with the way that you talk about statistics, certainly. So Alex has prepared some questions for us. Alex, would you like to give us a question to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I'll get right into the meat of it. So, first of all, are you worried about AI or artificial intelligence? Only if it's smarter than me, mate. <laughs> as, as, as I mean, I feel like you've justified on this podcast that if AI is a capability of rendering the analysis of Albion as you, that it'll at least have a podcast worth listening to at the very least so that's encouraging <laughs> i have a question for you chris it's something you alluded to at the very start in fact it might have been on our conversation off air before we came onto the podcast i'm not quite sure but for the benefit of listeners the xg conversation some people love it other people are less convinced about its value in football i'm a big big fan of xg as people who listen to this podcast will know but you said that was somewhat of a starting point for your conversations with pete if you want to share some of that insight yeah. that you gave us it was one of those things that particularly during valerian ishmael was just winding me up and I, I knew it was winding pete up as well pete and i actually just started talking through twitter we hadn't met in fact weird thing about me and pete we've still never met in person we've always talked digitally um, this is the so... dramatic revelation that pete yeah. is ai Pete, Pete may well be AI, he's certainly smart, and he is smarter than me, so every possibility Pete might be AI. But um, yeah, it was the annoyance that, that there was this misunderstanding around expected goals and what it actually means, because it obviously got quoted so much around Valerian Ishmael. And I think the thing with that that annoyed me more than anything was that people seem to think that when you say that you're top of the XG table or your XG was good this game, that you're saying that there's nothing wrong that everything is fine and everything will be okay. You might be saying that because what you might be saying is that the goalkeeper has had this freakishly good game or you've just missed chances that you, in another game you would never in a million years miss. In, in a one-off game, you might be saying that. If you are looking over a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 game period and 
you are underperforming your XG. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is you've got to look for reasons as to why. Like, for example, this season under Bruce, you're looking at it and saying, in terms of XG, we should be much, much higher. In fact, we, I think we were top of the XG table at the point Bruce got sacked, which is absolutely crazy. But the reality is that the reason for that because the goalkeeper lets too many in at one end and that the strikers don't finish the good chances. What we're effectively saying when we say that Albion's XG this season has been good is that between the two boxes for a large portion of the season, we've been pretty decent, but we have fundamental failings in the in the guy who was in goal for 11 games and in the guy who's supposed to be finishing the chances, whoever that might be. And, you know, I'm sorry, but you've got to throw everybody into, into that, whether we're talking Carl and Grant, Matt Phillips, Brandon Thomas-Asante. That, that's, that's the problem, that you're not saying, when you say we're stop, top of the XG League, you're not saying all is rosy, all is fine. Same as last season. When we were saying, you know, we're performing really well in terms of XG, we're not saying there isn't a problem. We knew there was a problem. We didn't have a number nine. We were winning the XG battle because we never looked like conceding and we were rock solid under Val. And we were creating chances because we had some good creative players. Not many, but one or two. You know, you, you Grady D and Garners of, uh, of this world. And we were, put, and because Furlong's putting balls into the box and all this sort of thing, we were creating a bit of havoc. We just didn't have a proper goal scorer. So that was really where the, where, where the podcast was kind of born out of to a certain degree, was that people were having this conversation without really understanding what it was they were that what they were talking about and they, and they would take it this thing of xg and saying when people say albion are performing well in terms of xg they're saying that they're performing well and it's not that any form of data is supposed to inform you of something and if when you look at data and you see an anomaly something that is just completely wrong should not be there because the rest of the data doesn't support it in any way shape or form so for example you've got an xg against of half the goals that you've actually conceded you've got to look for reasons you've got to look for the reasons why that's happening and when you start drilling down into it and the goalkeeper's letting too many past them it's his fault you're not saying the team's perfect what you are saying is that it's all about context it's all about looking at the data and saying if you are literally doing what the data says, you're scoring the goals you should be scoring, you're conceding the ones you should be conceding, you're performing the data. Then you just look at the data and you take it surface level, fine. But if you are looking at the data and you're saying, what we're actually doing is not what the data says we should be doing, you've got to be looking at reasons why, because either you are doing something phenomenally wrong or maybe you're having an unlucky streak but unlucky streaks don't normally last that long or if the data's going in your favor maybe you're maybe there's something that you're doing really right maybe you maybe you've got a striker like blackburn are the are the xg outliers in this division are the team that are massively overperforming their data why because ben brereton diaz does not miss mm. that's why that's such a good point. And I think the way I like to think about XG and why I find it such a useful metric is that it kind of gives you a statistic that I feel in many ways it, it, it describes what your eyes are seeing anyway, where you go, come away from a game, you think we had chances to win that game. 
and are they scored against the run of play and I feel like XG plays out that story as a numerical value obviously if you underperform it you say we missed our chances and if they overperform theirs they they probably took hold of some really good chances couple more questions Chris and then I'm going to allow Joe to kind of pick your brain about some of your favorite Albion um, and then we'll let you head off into the sunset me and you had a really interesting conversation on Twitter that there are certain statistics that kind of bust myths, so to speak, myth-busting statistics, that there are certain narratives about some players that there are statistics that kind of are counterintuitive to the way we normally view that player. One of the ones I think came up on the Albion Analytics Twitter handle was Connor Townsend's involvement in progressive passes. It'd be great to hear you explain that one, but is there another one as well that you kind of can share a little bit of a nugget of wisdom with us? Yeah, I mean, I think what people underestimate with Connor is that he is the one who moves the ball out of defence really well. Without Romain Sawyers, we've had we, we've had a real gap in that particular area where ever since Sawyer's pretty much left the club, obviously Premier League season was a bit different um, and we obviously had Ainsley, Maitland-Niles and Conor Gallagher and people like that for a period of that season as well. But in the Championship, Sawyer's was the one who did that. The, the defence just gave the ball very, very simply to Sawyer's. Sawyer's then did the rest from there i.e. got the ball to Pereira most of the time. Without Sawyers, we have a gap and we haven't replaced Sawyers in terms of having a progressive midfielder who can actually play those passes. So you need somebody in the defence who can actually do that. And when you actually look at the data, the outball so much of the time has been Townsend, has been Townsend playing out from the back. And whilst nobody's pretending Connor Townsend has had a great season and he hasn't had a great season, he's made mistakes. I think he's, you know, he's got to take a lot of the fall for the goal at Preston, which cost us the game. Also, you know, when he was playing centre-half against Swansea, he's just, he gets turned way too easily by Michael Oberfemi for the winner. When you give a piece of data that supports a player's contribution to the team, people seem to think that you're calling them Roberto Carlos, and I'm not. I'm not saying Connor Townsend has had a great season. He hasn't. But what I'm saying is people don't realise sometimes that he actually is an important part of Albion getting out from yeah. the back, or certainly was under Bruce. Whether he will be under Corbran remains to be seen. It depends how Corbran wants to get the ball forward, especially when DK comes back, because we'll have that more direct option. But I think the biggest one, I had the QPR commentary in my ears for the QPR game, and I heard their commentator say, well, Grady Dean Garner's out on that left-hand side. He won't want to track back. Utter, utter myth. Grady's our second best defender, statistically speaking behind oh. Dara O'Shea. Grady, in terms of all the things that you expect a defender to do, tackles one, interceptions, clearances, all those sorts of things, it, people don't notice it because he does it much further up the field. But Grady makes more defensive actions than any other West Bromwich Albion wow. player outside of Dara O'Shea. The guy works unbelievably hard. And it does it does annoy me when, when people start trying to hit Grady with the stick of, he shouldn't be in the team because he's not got enough assists, he has got en not got enough goals. I agree that he doesn't. He needs to be more composed with his finishing because he should have had more goals than he's had this season. In terms of assists, I don't think that's necessarily his fault. When when a player doesn't have enough assists, uh, sometimes you've got to look at the person finishing his chances, especially if his expected threat is quite high, and Grady's normally is. But in terms of his defensive actions, the guy works his backside off. I personally love him. I think he's a brilliant footballer. And I don't understand why some people do seem to underrate him just because just because he had a bad season in the Premier League and Valbor was not for him. 
no. and that's not his fault that's not his fault like foul ball is a very specific way of playing and it's just not going to work for some players and it didn't work for him at all but I think this season he's been one of our better players and I, I'm, I'm a big big fan I really I really like him and I think I think he gets underrated for the for the amount of work he puts into the team absolutely right and I think that's such a a kind of an insight into the way you guys approach watching the Albion that that understanding that I guess for many of us watching Dean Garner we are looking predominantly at his attacking output but to kind of how the numbers kind of disclose this hidden narrative underneath the surface that he's actually one of our main like defensive contributors is to me it's mind-blowing altogether and all I can hear is that distant sound at the moment of a mist shattering and people just embracing this fresh perspective on Grady, Dean Garner. Right, we've got Chris for a few more minutes now. So Joe is just going to hit him with some questions about the Albion and then we are going to allow him to leave. Yeah, these are the searching questions what everybody's been waiting for. You know, uh, <laughs> what's your favourite Albion player of all time? Now, now that's a difficult one because there's the, the, for me there's two periods in supporting Albion. There's working for the Albion and then the supporting Albion. I'm not going to pick anybody that I worked with purely on the basis that it would. It, so I'm literally discounting every everybody that I ever that I ever worked with as being available to me in this category because I don't want to kind of pick somebody and you know it seemed like favoritism or whatever not that they would care but but you know and, what I mean? they, and let uh, me just say chris they do all listen to the podcast as well and i don't want their, their feelings to be hurt over well, this so that's well, a quite. Responsible I'm, I'm a sensitive guy i don't want i don't want you know i don't want to upset anyone so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna pick uh, i'm gonna pick somebody outside that look i grew up loving bob taylor for, for for obvious reasons absolute legend you know just what a striker and and proper proper mr albion but the only other one that i'd mentioned only because we were sat in the brummy road talking about him the, the other the other day because i think they played one of his goals on the screen before before one of the matches and i have to say for pure elegance i loved andy hunt what a player if he hadn't got ill I maintain that guy would have played in the top half of the Premier League for, for quite a few years. Because I'm not saying he could have played for one of the title-winning teams, but I'm telling you right now, if, if, you're not telling me Andy Hunt couldn't have got into Everton or Tottenham or one of those perennially mid-table Premier League teams, because he absolutely could. He was an unbelievable footballer. Well, there you have it. There you have it. Well, I was going to ask you, after that, current Albion player. So, who's your current Albion player? <laughs> It's hard to love many of You know, when we talked earlier about setting up someone to succeed, you've just set him up to fail at no, this question. Uh, no, do you know what? I'm going to, uh, uh, I mean, I do love Grady. I do, I'd like to put that out. I do love Grady, but I'm I'm going to pick the obvious one. I'm going to pick Mr. 100%. I love Jed Wallace. Like, I thought you were going to go Dave Button then. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah that's 100, 100% of shots conceded, yeah. No, uh, uh, J Jed Wallace is just... I think what I love about Jed Wallace is I, I feel like if one of us had the physical and technical ability to pull on the West Bromwich Albion shirt, that we would like to believe that the kind of performance we would go out and give is the one Jed Wallace gives every week. You know what I mean? He is like a supporter running round on that pitch because you know how you always say if I got to pull that shirt on I wouldn't stop I'd run for 90 minutes you you know you'd basically have to cut the shirt off my back it'd be that drenched in sweat you know what I mean that that's I don't think that's how every fan feels about 
pulling on the shirt. That's what I see from Jed Wallace every week. And he is a technically a brilliant footballer, but that's not why I love him. Why I love him is because is because he goes out on that pitch and he plays like a supporter who's been given the opportunity to go out and play. I love him. What's your favourite non-Albion football player? Ooh. Current players, always, I always like slightly obscure ones. Anybody who hasn't been watching Serie A this season, I'm not even going to attempt to butcher saying his name, but oh, have a look at the no, little Georgian lad. Paratscaly or whatever his That's name him. is. That's him, yeah. yeah. Have, have a look at him. He is. I love the story. I, you know, I love the fact that he was playing in Russia. He obviously he left there because of the war. So he went and had one season playing in the back in the Georgian league. And Napoli saw him and just went, oh, we're going to have him. And he's gone in there and he's just absolutely taken Serie A by storm this season. He's just, I love it. So raw and no fear just everything I love in a footballer in terms of players who've retired I I love Bergkamp like Bergkamp's probably scored three or four of my favourite goals the, the one round Nikos Dabby's ass yeah, is just disgusting but the, my favourite World Cup goal of, of all time that's not scored by an England player is that one he pulls out the sky against Argentina in the quarterfinal just how he does that bit of control is a joke an absolute joke you know uh, he, the guy was technically the best footballer I've ever seen yeah and he's so in his brain I just love to be able to think about football the way Burkham did and Carrot Scaly I can't say his name properly either but it's something near to that Georgie King Clancy part two I know he doesn't play exactly the same way as Georgie King Clancy did but the way he moves with the ball and the way he drives so directly I mean it was funny I was watching the Napoli Liverpool game in Naples with a Liverpool fan and their confidence going into that game and he just ripped that space that's occupied unoccupied by Trent Alexander-Arnold that kind of cavity in the Liverpool defence the way he just brutalised them I couldn't agree more what an exciting player we're going to let Chris go there because he's been really generous and he's given us he, he hasn't been to the debate club before and he doesn't realise how painstakingly slow and long we are at the debate club and how everything is an exhausting process to get things recorded and, and out to you guys but be sure to check out Chris and Pete on the Albion Analysis podcast as well make sure you go and download I believe Pete's away in Greece isn't he at the moment mate he's having a lovely old time mate Go and catch up on the backlog. There's some particularly interesting ones this summer as well as the guys kind yeah, of. Yeah, can I just in. can I just say if you if, if you haven't listened to any of our our pods yet and you just want a starting point, I can't recommend highly enough the chats we had with Jimmy Shan and Paul Shana over over the summer. Nothing to do with me and Pete, by the way. They're just both unbelievable blokes, and oh my god, do they talk honestly about their time at the club? Like oh. we said to them off air before we started, is there anything you don't want us to touch? Anything you don't want to talk about? No, lads. Absolutely. We, you know, just anything you want to chat about is fair game. And um, I mean, just so, so, so honest about two very different times at the club as well. Chewing the cud with Shana. I don't know if you name the podcast that, but um, it certainly was Chewing the Cud. And I, and like I say, there's all these podcasts, quite a, a big back catalogue now that you can go and listen to. And as you say, those episodes are pretty stand out in terms of like the content and obviously the characters involved in them as well. Just want to say a massive thank you to you, Chris, for joining us. If people don't know, if you want to give them like a final where they can find you and Pete and all the bits and pieces. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, no thanks required. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, gents. 
and uh, yeah in terms of us look please do give us a, a listen uh, Albion Analysis is available on um, Spotify Apple Podcasts pretty much everywhere where you'd find your pod, uh, your podcasts um, they're the two links I pop out every every week but it is it, it is elsewhere um, we are we're every week as long as Pete, Pete hasn't naffed off to uh, to Greece and if you want to give the, the, the pod account uh, a follow then it's just at Albion Analysis Pete is Albion Analytics on Twitter and I'm at CJ Hall 83 so feel free to drop uh, drop any of us a follow always great chewing the fat with Albion fans love it brilliant and as generously and politely as Chris has asked I demand it of our listeners that you do as he has requested that this isn't some sort of free-for-all democracy this is very much a dictatorship at the debate club and you are required to go and follow and listen to those guys podcasts just as a big thanks Chris thanks for joining us tonight my pleasure thanks guys well there he goes out of the door into the cold wind on this November evening it's been a pleasure having you Chris and I'm sure one day our paths will cross once again hopefully you've just enjoyed that I think the wonderful thing about Chris there is that you get a real sense of his passion for the album but obviously his credentials are really on show there that he's got a a mind that thinks about things in a really kind of detailed and statistical way, which is something that I guess in a lot of football conversations can feel a little bit missing whenever I'm involved in, it can feel a little bit kind of, especially when you're on place like Twitter, just really noisy opinions a lot of the time. And I think to hear someone speak about it with such like calculated reasoning is, is really refreshing. And I hope you listening to it right now, you've enjoyed kind of like how we've covered a little bit of the spectrum there. We're just going to have a few final thoughts with just the three of us here. Anything you wanted to kind of pull out about the last couple of weeks under Corbrand, the QPR game, anything that you two just want to kind of bring to the forefront? For me, like I, I mentioned it last week, but I just think he's such a breath of fresh air. And what he's done in the last two weeks is, you know, it's how encouraging. I can't describe how happy I am that we've managed to coerce him into the Albion. You know, I can see him staying there for a long time. Touch wood. I hope I haven't just jinxed him and it's downhill from him. A curse is upon him now. I heard the curse is coming back next weekend to the football. Oh, well, Joe, there with a kind of a little bit of a tease about something we posted on the Instagram concerning my wife. We didn't get the stats of Chris about this, which is disappointing, actually. But, I mean, the stats speak for themselves. My wife, five games attended, zero goals scored for West Bromwich Albion. We did run a poll on the Instagram to see whether she should be allowed to come back. The answer was actually kind of fairly mixed and it did change a couple of times during the voting process at some points the fans were feeling generous she would be allowed back into stadium before a final few votes in the final hours pushed it back towards no so my wife has been banned from West Bromwich Albion well, there you go but I, I will come in with my thoughts about Cobra. you will <laughs> basically what I want to say is more to do with Around that teen spirit that you saw, it's kind of fickle when you see that we've won two games and you think, oh, the teen spirit's back, which it probably isn't. It's probably, you know, a bit of confidence and a a manager who's worked on tactics in training. And I think that's what it probably is. But 
what I saw us do is something we haven't done for so long is irritate the opposition. Did you see Sam Field? He got really, really like, I think it was the challenge what led to the goal. I think he challenged one of our players, but they started to get angry, the QPR players. And I haven't seen Albion players get under people's, get on the nerves of the opposition, you know, anger them, make and make those rash challenges against Albion and, it's something that is obviously breathed into on the training ground. Keep it going to the end. You know, don't let your head drop. Put your foot in. You could get a challenge. Let's try and get some set pieces. Anywhere around in their half is a great challenge. Just try and get, you know, those type of things. And that really gives me confidence for the manager, to be honest, because I haven't seen this in ages. You know, under Val, it wasn't like that. We were just chucking balls in. We all loved Val at the start. We were winning. We were winning, you know, we... We are playing really good football for the first five, ten games. It was something new to us. And now we've seen this type of high-press football. I think Corbrand's in between that high-press and set-piece. He doesn't take the, the mickey around just chucking balls in because the players have already had that high-press football and they've had Steve Bruce. I think this is the, the nice medium for them. And I think, as you said previously, Kyle Bartley saying that he's meticulous about data and all those type of things. It's just nice to see. I'm not going to get ahead of myself and think he's going to be us winning. But if you see the league now, I think it's from us to the playoffs is 11 points. It's ridiculous. Everyone's beating each other. I haven't checked the results tonight and I don't understand why we're not playing tonight. It's a strange one. You know, everyone else has played except us, Sunderland and Millwall or something like that. It's strange. But yeah, I just think it's nice to have someone that gives them the fire in the belly. I think that's really well said, Joe. I think that's a lot of what we've heard about him doing on the training ground, a much more active approach to the kind of coaching. Whereas, as we've already referenced this tonight, the Elias Burke said that Steve Bruce had a very hands-off approach to do with coaching, whereas he's kind of on the pitch. You see the videos of him coming out. He's got his little stopwatch in his hand and stuff. There's obviously things happening with his coaching staff, which is nice to see. But then, like I say, there's these intangibles, just like teen spirit, kind of passion. The way he talks about the game, you can tell he loves football. He's kind of a student of the game. And I think so much of what you've seen from him so far, you'd be crazy not to feel encouraged. I think you've got to just take it for what it is. We're in a much better position under him now than we were three weeks, four weeks ago, whatever it was, under Bruce. Right. I'm going to quickly rattle off the news now. It could be a bit of a bumper episode of the Debate Club tonight. I think we might be in that realm. But nevertheless, let's get through some news. We had some interesting news around the club. Chris Brunt, former captain club legend has been appointed to an academy development role i'm also hearing from the liquidator today that that was to do with loan and the loans in terms of the academy and the development that means he will be a man looking into kind of players going out on loan and what clubs can provide them with the best kind of opportunity to grow in their game and also obviously kind of the for the place where players on loan will touch base i guess and track how loans are progressing and whatnot. I thought that was very interesting. Daryl DK returned for the Premier League 2 side, the under-23s. He scored a penalty just about. He won the penalty in really impressive fashion and then converted the penalty in really unimpressive fashion. But it's good to see him back on a pitch and get through the half he got through unscathed. I think that's just such a major win for the team. It sounded like it was a decent crowd at the under-23s as well. There's some chanting definitely happening 
Another interesting piece of information that Joe has brought to our attention is that the Albion Assembly are welcoming membership applications. The deadline is, Joe? Tuesday, the 22nd of November. At? 5 p.m. And Jim White will announce if you've got the paperwork in time on Sky Sports News. But Joe says, and Joe pointed out to us off air, that this is an attempt by the Albion Assembly to diversify the members of the Albion Assembly. I'm not sure exactly what demographic looks like in the room of the Albion Assembly, but I think any efforts to kind of bring greater variety and a greater diversity of opinions and footballing perspectives into the room can only be really beneficial and create a more healthy conversation around the club. Bit of a rubbishy news, really, for someone who's recently joined the club. Tom Rogic is not been named in the Australia World Cup squad, so that's a bit of a a shame for him obviously he hasn't played an awful lot of football so I guess it was perhaps on his um, horizon anyway and obviously there's no news yet about Daryl DK and his involvement with the USA squad but I think from the rumours that we're hearing it, it seems unlikely that he's going to make their their squad but I guess from an Albion perspective without being kind of cruel because obviously it's a dream to represent your country it's kind of like I feel like it's okay to feel good that he's going to just be at the training ground getting some extra fitness in and kind of carrying on his rehabilitation under the scrutiny of all of the Albion coaches and whatnot. We're going to quickly get into our pre-match preview with the Stoke game. And I really do mean quick. So Stoke have stopped the slide a little bit tonight with a win against Luton. Luton, who potentially losing their manager, which is interesting enough. They've won 2-0 at home. They had been struggling up until that point. They seemed to kind of slide down the table a little bit and we're just hovering outside the relegation zone they have jumped up the table a little bit recently but they've got Dwight Gale and a few other characters that have Albion been interested in the past like Liam Delap and a few other characters but I think this is the first time I'm going into a game as an Albion fan this season where I actually feel somewhat confident we should be able to get a result I don't know about you guys but I'm certainly feeling like this is a chance for us to go on a three-match winning streak just before the World Cup break. And I'm going to give you my prediction ahead of your predictions. I'm going to say Albion win this game 2-0. I am going to agree a tad bit, but I think we'll get a draw here. I think we still need to... I think he's still working out his you know, tactics and in, embedding his strategy, his vision, his tactics. Uh, so I think... This is going to be a 1-1. I don't think you'll want to lose this going into the break. I think it'll be more about keeping the points, getting on the board and uh, working into the World Cup as a pre-season to start the season again. So I'm going to go 1-1 here and Dwight Gale getting his goal for Stoke, which he hasn't scored for a long time, getting back on, on the go. Tyler G. I'm going to base my prediction on stats in honour of uh, Chris. So wonderful, Alex. And I think I'm going to go for a 2-0 to the Albion because I think we'll be better rested because Stoke have played midweek. We haven't. And then I I reckon Jed Wallace and Dean Garner are going to score one each. Chris's two favourite players. Oh, that would be lovely for him as a way of the debate club saying thank you to Chris that we could organise that for him. I do have some... Bad news to announce. It kind of contradicts something I said earlier. My wife has already purchased a ticket for this game. She is coming. So you can bet your mortgage on Albion will not score. I don't know what it is about Carly that makes the squad react 
in such a way that like kind of stifles creativity and it kind of nullifies all of the kind of attacking impetus. I don't know whether there's an additional pressure because she's there, but it's certainly been responsible for all of our goalless home performances recently, in my opinion. No comment. No comment. I reckon she's... I think it's a bit of a bad omen, put it like that. <laughs> well, on that kind of suspense-filled note, we'll come to an end of the debate club. It's been a different debate club, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. I think we love having guests on and, and the insight they provide, and we're really thankful to Chris that he's joined us tonight and kind of shared his stories and his perspective on where we're at as a club and where we have been as a club as well. It'd be really great if you could go and check his podcast out, Albion Analysis Podcast. Like he said, you can go and check that out on all good podcast platforms and whatnot. Give him a listen, give him a star rating, give him a review, tell him the Hawthorns Debate Club sent you. But all that remains for me to say tonight is a huge thank you to you, Alex. Cheers. A huge thank you to you, Joe. Cheers. Thank you to Chris once again, and thank you to all you for listening and feeling some piano vibes. Sweet dreams.